0: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. Okay, I have uh, a little bit of a funny story. Just coming in hot, huh? Coming in hot, yeah. So yesterday, I pick up the boys from daycare, and we're driving home, and Ben, the five-year-old, is getting into, like, pranking and telling jokes and, like, saying silly stuff, like, you know, calling you like a, a butt face or a eyeball head or something, you know, <laughs> like whatever. And so he's like, mom, you're a stinky stinker butt. And Jesse, the three-year-old goes like immediately, don't call my mom stinky. She not stinky. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, thanks, Jesse. He like rode in on his white horse yeah, it was like it was there for you. Don't talk about my mama that way. <laughs> it was so funny. It reminded me of uh, white chicks were like, "Oh, you want to talk-, talk about mother?" Jesse <laughs> was, so- was definitely that. Like, yeah. hold my beer. I'm going to take care of this. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. I was like, he's never done that before. Like, don't talk about my mom. <laughs> I love it. It was adorable. Yes. Oh, <sighs> okay. So today's case is like a doozy. It's a big fat doozy, yes. Oh my god, such a doozy. Doozy and a half, really. Yeah. Before we jump into the Biggie and Tupac case though, case says, each in its own right. Um, we just want to remind you about our Patreon. You wanna hop in there because it is like it's like the best. It's a party. It is. It's a party. And like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna like toot our own horn necessarily, but like, upwards of four people have said it's the best Patreon out there. I know. And you can't argue with science. So, exactly. We release three episodes a week, y'all. Three. (laughs) So, if you want two bonus episodes a week, head over to the Patreon. And even if you join just at the lowest level and you don't get all the bonus episodes, you get everything ad free, instant access to the part two. Yes, instant access. Whenever you want to partake in that, you know? Exactly. You don't got to wait a week. So there's lots of good stuff in there. And you still get a bonus episode a month, even at the lowest level. So something for everybody. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash killerqueenspod. Um, We do have a case discussion group that's free on Facebook. We are doing weekly lives in there. We do weekly lives on our Instagram page. Like, there's lots of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. going on. So come hang with us. Like If you want to hang out with us more than just right now, like let's do it. Absolutely. And if you were to partake in the upper level Patreon group, you get a little bit more of an exclusive Facebook group that you can join where we kind of talk a little bit more intimately, but it's mm-hmm. still just gal palin about your favorite true crime stuff or just about 90s stuff or just about whatever kind of stuff. Yeah, and we do a bonus live in there every week too. So you would get two lives, three episodes. I mean, I just like, I cannot stress enough. It's like an infomercial from the early 2000s. Like, Can you tell us again <laughs> all of the amazing free things that you could get? And if you act now, you'll get a bonus. Like mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You get two for the price of one. But yeah, and you know what? That's all for less than the price of a Tamagotchi. That's incredibly true. I mean, come on per month. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, if you're like me and you go to Starbucks, the $10 a month one will get you, like you can get that for less than one <sighs> count them, one trip to Starbucks. My I'm a goodness. full monster. I keep just upping. I'm like, how about, what else can I add? I've mm-hmm. got money to spend here, ladies. Come on. Exactly. Once you put it in the app, it's like, it's not real money, right? Exactly. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. All right. So I feel like we've covered that. Yeah, I do too. We just want to let you know how fun it is in there. Yes. And if you want to hear two white chicks talk about rap and the (laughs) story of Biggie and Tupac, then keep listening. Keep on listening. Here we go. All right. So between September of 1996 and March 1997, there were several cultural events that took place. To name a few. On September 8th, 1996, Blues Clues premiered on Nick Jr. Oh, still going strong. Yeah, it is, but it's changed and I almost can't even get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. November 5th, 1996, Bill Clinton wins the presidential election for his second term. November 16th, 1996, Space Jam is released in theaters. Amazing. Amazing. December 25th, 1996, the death of John Benet Ramsey. Again, we almost can't get into that. Uh, yes. February 5th, 1997, a civil jury finds O.J. Simpson liable for the deaths of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. February 28th, 1997 is the North Hollywood shootout, which we will be covering later on this year. Somewhere mixed in there has to be when we all thought we watched Shazam with Sinbad. <laughs> it's somewhere in here. Right. Definitely. I definitively remember that. It's when our worlds were forever changed and then flash forward 30 years or 20 years or whatever, and you're like, oh, so it it didn't. Now my world has changed because it never even fucking happened. My whole life is a lie, basically. And if you oh, want to hear husband. more about that whole situation, we have a whole Instagram live on it and I saved it to the profile so you can check it out. Yes. I do think that we should put a pin right here and just talk about the fact that Mark was amazing and researched and wrote the facts on all of this. Yes, he's a thank little you, sweet Mark. angel, and then it was requested by Kim Hunter and by Mark. So, yes, thank you guys. All right, so two bookends to these events are the murders of Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, which is the notorious big I- Big Jesus. Oh my God. Big IG. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening right now. Wow. J- please forgive me. Mm-hmm. I know not what I do. Oh, you did it. I did it. Is it Brian Adams or Ryan Adams? I get them mixed up. It's definitely 100% Brian Adams, but I have learned through actual events that have taken place in my life that if somebody likes Ryan Adams, if you just say, oh my God, I know I love Brian Adams and you pretend like you know what they're talking about, but they can clearly tell that you're saying Brian instead of Ryan, they get very angry. (laughs) It's a pretty fun prank. Okay. All right. I'll try it sometime notorious B-I-G. I I can read those three letters. I know that's... Of all the things you've read and you've screwed up three letters, it's pretty impressive. Big I-G. Big I-G. Said it like five times. (laughs) Okay. So let's take a look at who each of these two were and where they came from. Do you want to uh, let us know about Tupac? Sure. Tupac Shakur was born Lassane Parish Crooks on June 16th, 1971 to Afini Shakur, who was his mother, and Billy Garland, who was his father. When he was around one year old, his mother changed his name to Tupac Amaru Shakur. He was named after the descendant of the last Incan ruler, Tupac Amaru. His mother would later say, I wanted him to have the name of revolutionary indigenous people in the world. I wanted him to know he was part of a world and not just from a neighborhood. From a very early age, his mother wanted to instill in him that he was bigger than his immediate surroundings. There was more to the world than just their Harlem neighborhood. He had an older stepbrother and a half-sister who was two years younger than him. Both of Tupac's parents were involved in the Black Panther Party in the late 60s and early 70s. In fact, a month before he was born, his mother, Afini, was put on trial in New York City as part of the Panther 21 criminal trial. She was acquitted of over 150 charges. I also heard that she uh, represented herself. Yes, I heard that too. She's a badass. Yeah, she was is. a badass. I mean, like, and the Panther 21 was a group of 21 Black Panther members who were arrested and accused of planning like a coordinated bombing and rifle attacks on two police stations and an education office in New York City. Yes. And she said, Not today, bitch. <laughs> exactly. Other members of the family involved in the Black Panther Party served time in prison. His stepfather, Matulu Shakur, was placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list for four years and was convicted of robbing an armored truck in 1981 that resulted in the deaths of a guard and police officers. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Tupac's godfather was a high-ranking member of the Black Panther Party and convicted of murdering a schoolteacher during a robbery. His sentence was overturned when it was revealed that the prosecution hid evidence that he was in a meeting Four hundred miles away at the time of the murder and robbery. Wow. Yeah. That's real sweet. Prosecution. Just wow. And I think we should also like just make a little pony. Oh, you haven't got me with that in a really long time. No. Every time waited. I say little, and I can't think of the next word. She's like pony. I'm like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to go pick up this little pony. pony. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. I wanted to wait, give it enough time to settle to where you would let your guard down, and then blast you with it again. You totally did. Warning or statement, disclaimer, that Tupac and Biggie, like, they're very much remembered and kind of put on a pedestal, and their music was absolutely amazing. And game-changing. Yes, and they're like, these larger-than-life people and icons and all these things, but we're not going to gloss over the things that they did. They were both involved in some criminal activity and things like that. So I don't know. We just wanted to kind of put that out there that like we're talking about the whole person here and kind of everything. Right. And it's a non-biased or unbiased account of, it's just facts. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that is not to negate or dismiss anything that they did in the music industry because I love both of them as artists. I think that, you Mm -hmm. know, sometimes, unfortunately, we have to look at what they contributed to the music scene or society or whatever, and then you got to kind of take them for who they are as a person. So that's what we're trying to do here. Yes. In the mid-1980s, his family moved from New York City to Baltimore, Maryland. He spent eighth grade at a local middle school, then two years in a local high school. After that, he transferred to the Baltimore School for the Arts. While there, he studied acting, poetry, jazz, and ballet. He acted in Shakespeare plays. He played the Mouse King in The Nutcracker. He would regularly win competitions at the school's, as the school's best rapper. He was well-known for his humor and mixed in with all of the groups or cliques. While at the art school, Tupac met a young Jada Pinkett Smith just Jada Pinkett at the time. The two became best friends, and she would be his muse occasionally when he would write poetry about her. After his death, she would go on to say, quote, he was one of my best friends. He was like a brother. It was beyond friendship for us. The type of relationship we had, you only get that once in a lifetime. Man, they were both like so talented in different ways too. Mm -hmm. Like, Tupac with his like poetry, and he was so interested in like you know, reading those like classic works. Dude, and I feel like he's kind of a renaissance man or was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At such a young it's age just, too. It's so- I know, yeah. Just so interesting to be that young and that mm-hmm. kind of like you and the Golden Girls, but but different. Yeah, I didn't think you could make a connection like that, but I appreciate you <laughs> throwing <laughs> me in with that. Um, and cross-stitching and stuff. I'm not saying, you're not talented. Well, I didn't say that. That's- but just you like things that- you know, old ladies like. Exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I need to incorporate that at some point, but I just don't like, and not that Worthers specifically, I just don't like sweet stuff. I'm just, I can't do it. I love Worthers. Oh, so I see. I really do. You've got a little. I can buy you some diabetic candies. They're not as sweet. <laughs> I don't want any kind. Well, that's not true. Cause the other day while I was at work, I was having a little bit of a coughing fit because of allergies. Yeah, yeah. And yes. I was like, oh, I geez. need a hard candy. Like, this is a lot. I could not You're stop. Damn right. And that's why you keep a Werther's in your purse, exactly. just for emergency situations. Exactly. exactly. All right. So let's get to the notorious Trello. B.I.G. Oh, yeah. Biggie Smalls, Biggie. Christopher Wallace was born on May 21st, 1972 to Jamaican immigrant parents, Valetta Wallace and Selwyn George Latour, which was his father. When he was just two years old, his father abandoned the family. His mother worked two jobs for years to make ends meet. While in middle school, he excelled and won several awards as an English student. It was also around this time that he gained the nickname Big because he was overweight at a young age. He would claim later that he began dealing drugs at 12 years old. With his mother working two jobs, he was free to come and go throughout the day, but all of his friends looked back and laughed because when it was time for her to get off the train after working for the day, Biggie would always make his way back home on time. Valletta did everything she could to raise her son right and was tough on him when she needed to be. She would make him sit on the steps of their apartment building during the days that she was home and not go out running the streets with his friends. She was very, like, she reminds me a little bit of Lauren Hill's I was mom, say, Rita's mom, and yeah, yeah, and Distract uh, yes. Two. Yeah, two. Valletta seemed like she was more, I don't want to say compassionate, but like warm, you know? Mm-hmm. She was a little bit more fun and she could laugh with him and things like that. It seemed like they had a really, really sweet relationship, but she was very much like, you are not going to be a product of this neighbor, you know, like, yeah, well, cause I'm sure she had seen what the streets in that area could do to young kids, to anybody really. I mean, if you get kind of mm-hmm. caught up and tied up in the wrong people, your life could go downhill. Cause I mean, I watched the biggie. I got a story to tell on Netflix and puff daddy is the only way that I know him i know that he's diddy or like p diddy now or whatever sean Buh. yeah i no, only whatever. want to call him puff daddy but yeah he's puppy right um he was talking about how he discussed with biggie he was like look you know this way of life like running the streets only results in one of two things you either end up in jail or you end up dead like mm-hmm. and i'm sure his yeah. mom knew that a lot of knew that Exactly. Yeah, she was very much like you're going to study, you're going to get a good job, you're going to go to college. Like she did whatever she could to provide him that opportunity Mm -hmm. too. And what a good role model because she did it herself, coming from Jamaica, and she yeah, yeah, she worked her ass off to get where she was. She sure did. Yeah, she was a a again like both had very very strong mother figures, Mm -hmm. like just strong women did what they had to do. You know, Mm -hmm. it's pretty awesome. So Biggie starts rapping as a teenager and performed with a few local groups. His first MC name was MC Quest. It was around this time that he asked his mother if he could transfer from his school to George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School. That is a long school name. It is or GWCTEHS. <laughs> if that makes it any easier, SRCATP and <laughs> um, DB. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, in downtown Brooklyn or DBS, Tori already yeah. said. This is notable because at the time, the school had a few students who would grow up and become notable rappers in their own right. So Biggie attended school with DMX, may he rest in peace, yeah. Busta Rhymes, and Jay-Z. His mother said that while he attended the new school, he developed a, quote, smart-ass attitude, but he was still a good student. At 17 years old, he dropped out of high school and began to focus on a life of crime mostly dealing drugs. Biggie's main focus was still trying to become an artist and make it big, but he saw how the guys in the neighborhood were making money selling drugs and decided to start doing it himself for financial freedom. It didn't take long for him and his crew to become the biggest dealers in their neighborhood and surrounding areas. During one interview in the Netflix documentary, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell, it's revealed that they were making upwards of $7,000 per week. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and what, like, do you blame them? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, okay, here are my two options. Like. Suffer. Yeah. Or make money and be able to keep the lights on and put food on the, I mean, you know, my mom is busting her ass working two or three jobs and we're barely making ends meet. Mm -hmm. Like. You feel like you're never getting ahead, and you have these older guys in your neighborhood being like, hey, kid, come do this. You'll make some money. Like, of course they're going to do it. Like, And when you're young, you feel invincible, and you don't think that anything's going to happen to you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. The drug dealing continued for a while, and Biggie did everything he could to hide it from his mother, knowing that she would flip the absolute F out if she found out. Like, a big time. She would flip out. Oh, Yeah. By this time, she was working nine to five as a teacher and the corner where they would work was right near her train stop. So that's, uh, that's risky. It's risky, but it's also kind of like, I mean, God forbid if it was them, you know, she, if she came home from work early, they're totally in trouble, but it's a good way to keep an eye out and be like, okay, well, she's not here yet. You know? Yeah, exactly, because she, like, the, where they were, they could kind of see all the way down Fulton Street, and they would keep an eye on, there was, like, this huge clock at the end, and they would keep an eye on the time, and when it was time for her train to pull in, Biggie would rush home to beat her there. So he was, like, always trying to, like, beat the clock, basically. But like you said, if she came home from work early for some reason, he's totally screwed. hmm And um, there's other ways that he might get caught. One day, Valletta was home and doing some cleaning. She went into Christopher's room and was like, what in the actual F? It is so dirty. So she's like cleaning it up. She saw on the windowsill that there was a plate with some old food sitting on it. Oh my gosh, I would be so mad. Mm -hmm. Valletta dumped the food in the trash and cleaned the dishes from his room. And when he got home and went towards his room, Valletta chastised him about leaving a plate in his window with old mashed potatoes on it to dry and get stuck to the plate. What she did not realize was that Christopher had left some crack on the plate to dry out before they sold it. When he told her what it was, she was freaking pissed. Mm -hmm. She went as far as to kick him out of the house. He promised to stop dealing, but it was too little too late. Even after he was kicked out of his home, he kept dealing for a little while. I would not know what crack was either if I saw it. Mm -mm. I would be like, yeah, you love some old food, out." or something. Exactly. I have no idea. In 1989, Big was arrested on weapons charges and sentenced to five years of probation. In 1990, he was arrested again and found to be in violation of that probation. A year later, he was arrested in North Carolina for dealing crack cocaine. He would serve nine months in jail before being able to post bail. After he was released from jail, he returned home to New York City and began working on a demo tape. He decided that he was going to give music a legitimate shot and put everything he could into it. Okay, so let's talk about Tupac's career. Tupac got his start and his meteoric rise to stardom began in 1980. He began his career as MC New York. That same year, he began to attend poetry classes that were given by Layla Steinberg. Shortly after he began attending her classes, Steinberg became his manager. After organizing a concert for Tupac and his group, Strictly Dope, she managed to get him signed by Atron Gregory. I hope I'm saying that name right. I think okay. so. And he was the manager of the rap group Digital Underground. Oh, so good. I know. Gregory put Tupac out on tour with the group as a roadie, and he quickly, quickly became a dancer for the group. Eventually, he worked his way up to being an MC on the stage with the group, and he was featured on one of their singles, same song credited as Tupac with the two. The single would go on to be featured on their 1991 EP titled This Is an EP Release. Straightforward to the point. I like it. Yeah, exactly. They're like, no questions here. Right. And he was featured, or that track was featured on the soundtrack for the movie Nothing But Trouble, starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Candy, and Demi Moore. After gaining notoriety with Digital Underground, the next step was for Tupac to record his first album, Tupacalypse Now, a reference to the 1971 movie Apocalypse Now. This album is regarded by many as one of the most influential to be released. Many rappers Oh, oh wait. Sorry, 1979 movie. What did I say? 71, which is fine, but I feel like there will be one person who will be like, that movie did not come out in 71. Right. <laughs> Do your research. So yeah. Many rappers cite it as the inspiration for their own music, including Eminem, Nas, The Game, and Talib Kweli. Again, I don't I not totally sure. Yeah, yeah. So sorry if I if I fucked that up. This album would not come and go without some controversy, though. In Texas, 19-year-old Ronald Ray Howard had been pulled over by a state trooper, Bill Davidson. During the traffic stop, Howard gunned Davidson down, killing him. He was listening to Tupacalypse Now, and Davidson's widow would say to the press, quote, There isn't a doubt in my mind that my husband would still be alive if Tupac hadn't written these violent anti-police songs and the companies involved hadn't published them and put them out on the street. Hmm. So she also goes on to say, I'm sure Tupac has no feelings for me or what happened to my husband. He obviously has a great anger toward law enforcement. All he cares about is singing songs and making money no matter who he hurts. I feel like it's not the same, obviously, but when we did the Framing Britney Spears episodes and the, oh my gosh, she was it? Like congresswoman or congressman's wife or something like that. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. And it's the same shit and he's problematic these days, and I understand that, but it's a good reference or good example to give. Marilyn Manson's been dealing with that shit for forever. Every rapper yeah, that's has been dealing thinking. with this, I guarantee it. Yeah, like Columbine and then everybody being like, well, they listened to Marilyn Manson and they played violent video games. Yes, it's like, people know right from wrong. Right. Like, and the thing is, I mean, that would be the same as saying, well, because what was he watching? Was he watching some movie with gun violence? Was he watching the news? Yeah, I listened to Limp Biscuit break stuff a lot when I was in high school. Um, I didn't chop anybody up with a chainsaw. Yeah. I didn't skin their ass alive. (laughs) If you wanted to go for the rhyme, it would be skin their ass raw. But exactly. Damn Damn it. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, that's just so ridiculous. And anybody is entitled to put out whatever music they want to put, their lyrics are their own. That's the beauty of the entertainment industry and being able to express yourself through whatever media you want to. Yeah. And Tupac did have some run-ins with law enforcement that were not okay. Well, I mean, my God, like, again, I've said it before, and I I know for a fact that we will never understand Terrell and I will never understand what it's like to be a person of color and to have to deal with law enforcement the way that it has been for years and years and years for people. And I hate that. I hate it so much. But no wonder the lyrics or the, you know, the words Mm -hmm. on his music were so, I don't want to say anti-police, but really, really upset with the police at the very least. I mean, Mm -hmm. what the fuck else was he supposed to feel? Exactly. Yeah. Like I mean, you, police don't ha- are not clean. Their hands aren't clean, and all this, you know. Like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Howard would be convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. He was executed on October sixth, two thousand five, in Huntsville, Texas, by lethal injection. Again, I mean, my God, quit killing people in Texas because you know what's going to happen to you. Man, well, don't kill people in here, but still. Yeah, they're not afraid to. No. Reacting to the situation, then Vice President Dan Quayle said, there's no reason for a record like this to be released. It has no place in our society. To which Tupac responded, I just wanted to rap about things that affected young black males. When I said that, I didn't know that it was going to, I was going to tie myself down to just take all the blunts and hits for all the young black males to be the media's kicking post for young black males. Gotta blame somebody, right? Exactly. Well, and unfortunately, he was... Brave enough to be the mouthpiece for this problem, and of course, everybody's going to be like, "Oh, look at what he's doing to the world." Yeah, but that's the thing. That's (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't want to get into this. Like, I don't even want to say political, but this whole that's white fragility. We can't sit and think of or hear what somebody else is going through long enough to understand it. We have to be like, "Well, look at what they're doing." Uh huh. I mean, it's the same thing as like, you know, if a person comes forward and says, you know, I was raped mm-hmm. or sexually assaulted. Well, what were you wearing? Right. Like, you got to blame. It's the blame game. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's that It's that whole thing. And, like, let's not take any responsibility for <laughs> the climate, yeah. you know, yeah. that is created by the things that police were getting away with during the time and still do. Yeah. Let's just put all the blame on the media industry. And look, media has like celebrities and all that, they do have a very big responsibility. Large influence. (laughs) Yeah, they've got a platform. People idolize them. They definitely are incredibly influential. But there's a reason that Tupac felt the way he did. Mm -hmm. And he's not the only one. And I'm sure he was not the only one who felt this way because everybody, you know, all these black youths that were listening to him we're like oh my god, thank God somebody is out here saying the things that we've been feeling. I'm sure he exactly. felt like he w- he was very lucky to have been able to express himself to a wide audience, and now he's mm-hmm. getting chastised for it. Right, and yeah, to your point, like yeah, the people that are listening, they're like, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it it creates the sense of community, and like just to know that somebody else. Knows what you're going through is also super powerful. Yeah. Like, you know, you don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. And again, if that many people can relate to something like that, then we need to do something about it. Well, and I do think that law enforcement specifically, because that's what we're talking about specifically about this, but I think everybody— could do a little more shutting the fuck up and listening
1: and mm-hmm. trying
0: to understand rather than just being like, nope, that doesn't, I don't agree with that. We can't have it. Oh my gosh, yes. There is, I mean, I've heard this phrase so many times God gave us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> uh huh. Two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Use them accordingly. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's a reason you've got double of one. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So even with all the controversy, the album would be certified gold, meaning it sold over 500,000 copies and is still considered relevant to the plight of young black men to this day. In 1993, February of 1993, Tupac would release a second studio album, and that one is referred to commonly as the Strictly album. The album would be a critical and commercial success featuring Ice Cube of N.W.A. and Ice-T of Ice- Loves Coco. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he's- Poor Ice-T. Most known for, right? (laughs) I love it. Little angel. So yeah, Ice-T, just kidding. He was an accomplished rapper who has been in the industry and found monstrous success for decades. He did also marry Coco, but anyway. He did, but also wasn't he in- um Criminal. What was that show? Oh, shit. What What's the show that like? Um, Criminal Minds. I don't know. CSI. Oh, or yeah, I don't know. I don't watch that kind of stuff personally. I don't have anything not either. It. I just don't watch scripted yeah. crime. Yeah. He was in one of those shows, I'm pretty sure. I think you're absolutely right. So the Strictly album would be certified platinum with over a million copies sold and features the single Keep Your Head Up. This single is collectively referred to as an anthem for women's empowerment. In late 1993, Tupac formed the group Thug Life with a few other rappers, including his stepbrother, Moprim Shakur. They would go on to release their only album, Thug Life Volume 1, in October of 1994, and it would sell over 500,000 copies, certified gold. Everything he touches turns to sold. Yes, and also gold. Yes, both. <laughs> yes. In 1995, Tupac released his third album, Me Against the World, which is often regarded as his magnum opus. Selling 240,000 w- albums within the first week of its release, this album featured the single Dear Mama and was certified platinum in July of 1995, surpassing over a million copies sold. Damn. At the 1996 Soul Train Music Awards, it won for Best Hip Hop Rap Album. While he was busy in the studio and creating music, Tupac also had the opportunity to act in a few movies. His first official film appearance was in the comedy Nothing But Trouble with the group Digital Underground, as they had a brief cameo in the movie. Next, he was tapped to star opposite Omar Epps in Juice. After that starring role, Tupac's star in Hollywood just began to rise. John Singleton had written the script for Poetic Justice and had just finalized talks to have Janet Jackson star. Opposite of her, he initially had offered the role to Ice Cube, whom he had worked with on Boys in the Hood. Ice Cube passed saying, man, I can't do romance. <laughs> Singleton's next choice was Tupac, who he had recently seen in an advanced screening of Juice. Tupac jumped at the chance to work with Janet Jackson and they quickly put together a screen test. Their chemistry was off the charts and the movie proceeded. I've seen this. It's been recommended for me. It's it's on. It was on Hulu last month. I don't know if it still is and I hope it is. If not, I don't mind paying for it. But I really want to watch it. It's been, you know, like Hulu's like bitch watch this movie, like you're going to like it. And I'm like, maybe later, maybe later. Yeah, I did not know, like until we started looking into this case, I didn't realize that Tupac did as much acting as he did. Mm -hmm. I was surprised about that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense though, because he was the school that he started out in. I mean, he did a lot of acting. He did a lot of everything Yeah, if it came to. Yeah, he was just an all around talent. Yeah. Recently, John Singleton spoke out about talking to Tupac during filming and telling him that he should give up rap and focus on acting. He told him he was an okay rapper. This was years before Tupac released me against the world, but he was a better actor. Tupac's response was, fuck you, hip hop is my voice. (laughs) Singleton also said, I'm the stupidest person in the world to be telling Pac that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and he like, like the way he said it was just like, no man, this is my calling. He wasn't wasn't an aggressive attack or anything. He was just like, Yeah. yeah, nah. After Poetic Justice, he would be in Above the Rim. After his death, there were three more films released that he starred in. Bullet, 1996, Gridlocked in 1997, and Gang Related, also in 97. Originally, director Alan Hughes had him cast in Menace to Society, but replaced him in the film when Tupac assaulted him on the set over a script dispute. John Singleton had also planned to, give him, to have him star in 2001's Baby Boy Before His Death, a role that was given to Tyrese Gibson. Mm. Yeah. I love Tyrese. As you should. Yeah. I mean. I mean, again, super talented. My God. Yeah. In the film, as an homage to Tupac, Tyrese's character's room had a mural of Tupac on the wall. Hmm. So it's easy to see that Tupac's star was not only on the rise, but taking off like a rocket. He was sought after by acclaimed directors in film and the music industry couldn't wait for his next album. Okay. So, again, as talented as Tupac was and as much of a star as he was. He did not live necessarily on the straight and narrow. Well, he's a fully or was a fully formed person. And sometimes that means that people have dark sides to them. Exactly. And he is, he's rapping about things that affect him, right? So he's rapping about things that he has seen, he's been affected by, he's been part of, things like that. Personal experiences, of course. Yes. In 1991, he was actually suing the city of Oakland Police Department for $10 million. Here it is in his own words from an interview about the incident with an acclaimed hip-hop writer, David D. Do you want to be David D or Tupac? I'll be David D. Okay. Okay. Can you talk about your recent encounter with police brutality at the hands of the Oakland PD? We're letting the law do its job. It's making its way through the court system. We filed a claim. Recount the incident for those who don't know. For everyone who doesn't know, I, an innocent young black male, was walking down the streets of Oakland minding my own business, and the police department saw fit for me to be trained or snapped back into my place. So they asked me for my ID and sweated me about my name because my name is Tupac. My final words to them was, fuck y'all. Next thing I know, I was in a chokehold passing out with cuffs on, headed for jail for resisting arrest. Yes, you heard right. I was arrested for resisting arrest. What does this sound like? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Where is all this now? We're in the midst of having a $10 million lawsuit against the Oakland Police Department. If I went and get the money, then the Oakland Police Department is going to buy a boy's home, me a house, my family's house, my family a house, and a stop police brutality center and other little odd things like that. So in the end, they settled for, wait for it, $43,000. Wow. And he got the shit beat out of him for jaywalking. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's why this kind of stuff keeps happening. Yeah. August 22nd, 1992, after performing at an outdoor festival, Tupac met with fans, signed autographs, and posed for photos for about an hour. After a bit, a conflict broke out and Tupac brandished a legally owned and carried Colt Mustang pistol. After drawing it, he dropped it on the ground. When someone from his crew picked it up, it accidentally discharged. A hundred yards away at a schoolyard, six-year-old Kyed Walker Teal was fatally shot in the forehead while riding his bicycle. Mm -mm. Police tracked the bullet to Tupac's pistol and his stepbrother was arrested. Due to a lack of witnesses, no charges were filed. In 1995, Walker Teal's mother filed a wrongful death suit against Tupac and settled for somewhere between 300000 to 500000 Yikes. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know if it actually, like, accidentally discharged mm-hmm. and somehow hit a kid in the forehead. I mean, not that they aimed at this child or anything like that, but <sighs> it's just so sad, like... It is so sad. And I do understand, I mean, depending on where you stand with gun laws and if you, you know, right to carry like all this stuff, but it can go wrong really quickly. It can be incredibly, it's a precarious situation to carry a gun. Mm -hmm. I've heard of people who are very, very knowledgeable about guns and gun safety and have shot them themselves. On accident, not fatal or anything, but still. Right. It's just so dangerous. It is. And I think this is where, like, things like this really put into context, like, how young Tupac was. Because, mm-hmm. again, at that time, you know, especially young men, they feel invincible. Some are a little bit, you know, quicker with a temper. Tupac had a temper. That was everybody around him knew that, you know? Mm -hmm. He was uh, fairly easy to anger and anybody who does practice gun safety will tell you, you don't pull it out every time you get upset. You know what I mean? Like, you know, emotions are running high. That's not the time you want to pull out a gun. So of course things are going to go awry when Mm -hmm. emotions are high and everybody's pulling out a gun every time they get mad about something. Right. And that happens a lot in this, uh, with all the different people involved in this case. Like, Mm -hmm. literally every time they see each other, it's like guns are getting drawn and like, you know, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just so dangerous. October 1993, in Atlanta, two brothers, Mark Whitwell and Scott Whitwell, off-duty police officers, were out celebrating with their wives since one had passed the Georgia bar exam. After leaving a restaurant, they were intoxicated and went to cross the street. As they did, a vehicle came down the road and almost hit them. They exchanged words with the occupants of the vehicle, one of which happened to be Tupac Shakur. A second car arrived, and the Whitwells turned to run away. As they ran, Tupac shot one in the buttocks and the other in the back. And this is where it gets a little bit sketchy. Both of the officers were found to be in possession of stolen firearms, and Mark Whitwell was charged with firing at Tupac's car. And Mark says, from what I've been able to find, here's what went down. By the time the second car showed up, the passengers in the first car were out and on the road yelling back and forth with the Whitwells. With the second car stopped, Mark pulled out his gun and, according to some sources, shot at Tupac's car. This is when they turned to run, and Tupac returned fire. Mark Whitwell was charged with firing at Tupac's car and making false statements to investigators. Tupac was charged with the shootings as well. Eventually, all the charges were dropped, citing that Tupac acted in self-defense. The Whitwells later filed civil suits against Tupac. Marks was settled out of court while Scotts went to trial, and he won a $2 million settlement. Eventually, the lawsuit resulted in a default judgment against the estate of Tupac. If it was like deemed as self-defense, how how did they get to file civil suits? No idea. That doesn't make any sense to me. And it seems like it'd be pretty easy to tell were there like bullet holes in the car or were there not? Right. Like, and especially if he's got all these other, you know, he's in possession of stolen firearms? That's pretty bad. Yeah, pretty like bad. we need to look into that. Also in 1993, Tupac was charged with assaulting a fellow rapper, Chauncey Wynn. Wynn claimed that he threw a microphone and swung a baseball bat at him. He pleaded guilty in September of 1994 and was sentenced to 30 days in jail and 35 hours community service. Earlier in 1994, Shakur served 15 days in jail for assaulting director Alan Hughes on the set of Menace to Society, which we already heard a little bit about. Mm -hmm. November of 1993, Tupac and three other men were charged with sexually assaulting a woman in his hotel room. The woman said that she had consensual oral sex with Tupac in the bathroom and then left the room. She later returned where she was raped by him and the other men. On December 1st, 1994, he was convicted of first-degree sexual abuse and was sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in prison. Wow. So now we have to get into Biggie and Tupac and how they were beefing like Arby's. That I thought was hilarious. It's the best thing that I've ever heard. At this point, we touch base on where Notorious B.I.G. came from and Tupac's early life and much of his career. Before we get into the final year or so of Tupac's life and Biggie's career, let's take a look at how these two superstars met and where things went south. On the set of Poetic Justice, Tupac was known to play music between takes and during downtime. One song that was on constant rotation and played repeatedly by the was by a little-known artist at the time, Party and Bullshit by Notorious B.I.G. Upon hearing about this, Biggie was flattered. At the time... Tupac was established in the industry and Biggie was just getting started. In 1993, the two finally met when Biggie was in LA and asked a local drug dealer if he could make the introduction between him and Tupac. The dealer put it together and Biggie met Tupac in his LA home. Whenever Biggie would find himself in LA, he always made a point to see Tupac as much as he could and Tupac would do the same when he was in New York. When Tupac had shows, he would call Biggie on stage to perform with him. Their friendship took on more of a mentor-mentee relationship when Biggie asked Tupac to be his manager. Tupac told Biggie that he needed to stick with his current manager, Sean Combs, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, a.k.a. Puffy, a.k.a. Diddy, (laughs) a.k.a. Brother Love. Whatever, Puffy. (laughs) Tupac told Biggie that Puffy would make him a superstar. When Tupac had been visiting New York, he met Jacques Haitian Jack Agnant and James Jimmy Henchman Rosemond. These were two underworld figures that were known to be shady. Biggie warned Tupac that he shouldn't be dealing with them. These two were known to rob and extort musical artists whenever they could. Tupac didn't heed Big's warnings and continued to hang with the pair. Haitian Jack was one of the three men accused of sexual assault in Tupac's hotel room. He would make a plea and face no jail time. In 2007, he was deported from the U.S. for shooting at someone. Eventually, Jimmy Hinchman would be sent to prison for life for drug trafficking. They were both like awful dudes, from what I can understand. Bad news. Yeah. They were, that's the kind of crowd you don't want to hang around with, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. On November 30th, 1994, Tupac was recording some lines for a mixtape with a local rapper. While there, his pager kept going off and he was clearly distracted. It was Jimmy Hinchman. He was offering Tupac $7,000 to come to the studio or to a studio in Times Square to record a verse for Lil Sean. Tupac had mounting legal fees from all of his run-ins with the law and reluctantly took the job. Tupac arrived with one or two others and parked in the parking garage. When they rounded the corner towards the front entrance of the studio, they saw some members of the junior mafia group, which was started by Biggie. Those members went inside to let everyone know that Tupac had arrived, while Tupac and his people smoked outside before heading up. The atmosphere was hyped inside, since word had spread that Tupac was coming to record unrelated to Tupac coming to the studio, Biggie and Puffy were also at the studio that night. They were on a different floor. They were working on a video for Biggie's song, Warning, and the studio had equipment and space for recording and editing on five floors. This place was huge. And this—I'm sorry, just to like—from what I understand, at this time— Biggie and Tupac were still friendly, right? Oh, yeah. No, they were cool. Everything was fine before this night. Okay. That's what I thought. That's what I understand. Yeah. That's what I understood as well. So Tupac and the crew entered the lobby and there were two men in army fatigues near the elevators and one man sitting reading a newspaper. As they approached the elevators, the three men jumped up and attacked the group focusing on Tupac. They demanded that he get on the floor and hand over all of his money and jewelry. He reached for his gun and they fired. One bullet hit him in the groin, going through his hip and taking a testicle with it. They ripped off his jewelry and shot again. He was shot in the head twice, twice in the groin, and once in his left hand. I mean. Tupac had around $35,000 worth of jewelry taken, and others had another 5000 taken. He was dragged into the elevator and taken to the eighth floor where Biggie was and given first aid while the police and an ambulance were called. He asked someone to roll a joint while he made a phone call to either his girlfriend or his mom, not really sure which one, and then they called the police. When the police came, there were a few familiar faces. Two of the policemen were there when Tupac was arrested for the sexual assault charges and a third was their supervisor who had also testified on the trial, which Tupac was supposed to hear the verdict on within days. As Officer McKernan arrived, Tupac said, hi, Officer McKernan, to which he replied, hey, Tupac, you hang in there. After surgery, Tupac checked himself out of the hospital against doctor's advice and attended and went to a Manhattan courtroom in a wheelchair all bandaged up and received the guilty verdict on the sexual charges. Tupac and those close to him immediately thought that the entire thing was a setup and put into place by Biggie and Puffy. He claimed that they, along with Uptown Records founder Andre Harrell, had prior knowledge of the robbery attempt. This belief was set into motion and added much more fuel to the East Coast, West Coast hip hop battle. I just don't get why, other than the fact that they were there already, like, who called you there? Jimmy Hinchman? You wouldn't have gone there if not for Jimmy blowing up your damn pager. Well, for sure. And Biggie told Tupac, hey, these guys are bad news. Like, they are known Mm -hmm. for robbing and taking money and things away from yes. musical artists well and i had heard too like i um or read in a couple of different things that the seven thousand dollars that jimmy henchman had promised tupac to do this recording he had been putting off like he had been um or he was supposed to have paid him for other gigs that he did oh and he was like making excuses not paying yeah any. yeah yeah like oh i forgot my wallet at home or you know whatever Then he was like, oh, hey, if you come and do this recording, you can get seven grand. And Tupac is like, well, I fucking need the money. Like, I have all these fees that I have to pay. So he was like, you know, I'm going to do what I can. And during that time, you know, he'd been in court on his trial for the sexual abuse case. And after he would get out of court, he would go and record all of these gigs just trying to make money, like build some money up. Mm-hmm. And so Jimmy Hinchman was dicking him around on the money that he owed him, from what I understand, and then he brought him there. Now, they stole $35,000 of jewelry off of him. If Jimmy Hinchman owes him money and is not giving it to him, there's either a reason that he doesn't want to or he doesn't have the money or whatever. But doesn't it make sense that, like, he tried super, super, super hard to get you there, and the moment that you get there, people obviously targeted him mm-hmm and and he owes you a shit ton of money should you die he doesn't owe you that money anymore yeah exactly it just that's what makes the most sense to me same exactly I don't understand why the finger was pointed at Biggie but I don't know yeah so Biggie and Puffy would later release a track titled who shot Ya," to which Tupac released hit Him up where Biggie and Puffy's track could be taken as a veiled shot at Tupac, never mentioning him or calling him by name or anything. With "Hit 'Em Up, Tupac went scorched earth. He called out several East Coast rappers by name, specifically Biggie, claiming to have slept with his wife. It was called an anti-East Coast jihad and is widely said to be the turning point in the relationship of Biggie and Tupac and the spark that really kicked off the East Coast-West Coast rivalry and ultimately kind of sparked... Didn't kind of sparked the deaths of both Tupac and Biggie. Mm. It makes me so sad because knowing what we know now yeah. and seeing it, and I think it's very important to remember that both of these men are in their early to mid-20s. Yes, yes. So your ego mm-hmm. and your invincibility charts are, it's off the rails, right? I mean, you think nothing's going to happen to you mm-hmm. and you don't care anything about, you know, saving your reputation no matter what, at what cost, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And they're also around a lot of people, especially Tupac, who he's having to like, you know, kind of prove himself like, okay, well, yeah, I'm tough. I can, you know. Well, and I think that that even trickled down. I watched a documentary on Tupac and it really, the person that they interviewed the most was his, his bodyguard, his personal bodyguard. uh uh-huh. And it was said a lot. And there was an interview with Tupac too, where he was like, because I've been doing so many movies, people think that I'm not tough. So I have to prove to everyone how tough I am. Hmm. Because people were saying like, oh, you're rapping about stuff that you don't even know about. You're not a thug, like all this kind of stuff. And so he felt like he had to come back harder and stronger to prove to everybody that he was. Hmm. And that like proving how tough I am, you know, like it just really, really highlights like you said how young they are and like Mm -hmm. how natural that is at that point in a young man's life like you know that their reputation is of like how tough they are is so important and they don't Mm -hmm. want to be seen as weak and you know it's just it's so sad because like you said knowing what we know now like yeah it just sucks it sucks yeah So that will, we'll wrap up here, part one, and then we'll get into a little bit more of Biggie's career. We're going to talk about death row records, Tupac's death, Biggie's death. We're going to get into all of that kind of stuff in the part two. So if you are part of the Patreon, you will get it immediately. Mm -hmm. And if you join the Patreon right now, patreon.com slash killer queens pod, even at $3 a month, you will get instant access to part two and ad free at that. I can't stress it enough. There's so much stuff on there that you've already probably, it'll be brand new stuff to you, but it's been around, right? So there's a ton of content on the uh, Patreon. So, oh yeah. If you want it, you can go get it. If not, that's totally fine. We'll catch you next week for part two. Yep. Bye. Bye. What's the time? diaper time. What's the diaper? Diaper time. But also shout out time. Oh, right. Sorry. But the <laughs> but the song is diaper time. Um, I thought you would maybe pick up where I was going with that. No. But no. no, just diaper time is what we're doing now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you don't know what I'm doing over here. <laughs> so we're going to read you guys a list of people who wear diapers. <laughs> no, <laughs> just that's kidding. That's not just it. Just kidding. I feel like it's like one of those little kid shows where it's like, where's the clue? And they're like, a clue a clue like you're like we're gonna read a list of people who are diapers and I'm like no it's not (laughs) (laughs) that's silly that is silly okay okay but just kidding we're reading actually our list of our newest patrons yay yay hopefully you don't immediately decide to not be a patron after that yeah we did just accuse you of wearing a diaper but as a joke it was a goof yeah the good. only people wearing diapers are me and Torello <laughs> exactly <laughs> we know what we like alright thanks oops I crapped my pants <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Alex I, I didn't have anywhere else to go without, so right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. thank you to Ashley West Courtney Anita Furst, Liberty Dermeyer Nohemi Torres Melanie Ruark Abby Vadner Carlin Moore Jessica Landrio Casey Whitaker Kirsten Lanier Shanna Anderson, Tanisha Kazluskas, Courtney Kramer, Ashley Cole, Amy Elizabeth, Caitlin Salmon, Kimberly Harper, Caitlin Christopa, Zanziri, Perez Canals, Jennifer McIntyre, Brandy Shelton, Samantha H., Nikki Jones, Brittany Hoots, Khadija Ugas, Brianna Johnson, Brenna Hone. Nicole Travaskis, Jordan Banta, Jenna JL, and Maggie Parker. Oh my God, you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. We love you. We love you. Oh, and just P.S. Make sure you join the exclusive Facebook Hangout group. So go to Patreon, click my membership on our page. Go to Start Here. You'll see all your stuff, but hang out with us in that Facebook group. It'll be fun. Bye. 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 We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.